your Bibles, please, to Genesis, to Genesis, how about Judges? Judges chapter 21, Judges 21, I was telling the, the Sunday school class this morning that my Bible automatically opens to Judges, uh, it's firmly stuck there, which isn't a bad thing. I anticipated today beginning a series on the church. But as I thought through and had some feedback from last Sunday's sermon on this last section of the book of Judges, I really felt I needed to tie up some loose ends and, and give a more complete conclusion before we move on. So we're going to revisit chapter 21 today. And if last week's sermon was titled The Bottom of the Sewer, uh, this week's sermon title is Hope in the Sewer. Hope in the Sewer. So, Lord, as we look to you as our hope and our strength and our rock and our refuge, just pray that your word would penetrate our hearts as we continue uh, to see all the work that you're doing throughout all of history to point people to your dear son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let me read chapter 21 again. Now, the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jebesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jebesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jebesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones, this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jebesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. 
Yet we cannot give them our wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would, be, you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, <clears throat> I, I went ahead and put in your bulletin last week's main points just to jog your memory so I don't have to review much. So if you recall last week, I began by showing how God had judged the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament, which was demonstrated here in the book of Judges and also in the letters to the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Um, from there, we examine the text by just looking at three specific questions that the Israelites were asking. We looked at verse 3, and they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And then we focus our attention on verse 7. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And then we looked at verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And the basic points we attempted to glean from these questions were, uh, number one, we saw the nation was responsible uh, for their killing of the people of Benjamin, that they could not blame God for their behavior. Secondly, we noticed that all the outward sacrifices that they were involved in did not mean that they were right with God. They were wrong to build the altar. There was no guilt and no sin offerings, just peace and burnt offerings. They were not seeking God the way God commanded him, them to, to seek him. They were doing what they wanted, how they wanted, worshiping their own way. Thirdly, we noticed they were wrong for killing the men of Jebesh Gilead, for not coming up to battle uh, and sparing the 400 virgins. Uh, the men of Jebesh did not deserve death for just not showing up for battle. And then finally, we mentioned how wrong they were uh, for stealing the girls from their parents during this pagan festival in Shiloh, and they found a loophole in the vows that they made to the Lord to not let their girls marry uh, any of the men of Benjamin. So we had civil war and kidnapping and genocide and their own system of worship 
with no guilt and no sorrow and no confession and no repentance. And we notice that the chapter was, in fact, a complete mess. We were clearly in the bottom of the sewer. And the reason for all this, we know, and we've said it a number of times, that there's no king in Israel and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Now today, what I want you to see is that even in the sewer, there is hope. And, I, and let me tell you in advance where we're going as we see the hope we can have in God, even in the darkest times. And I put these on the opposite side of, uh, of your handout so you kind of see where we're going. There, there is hope in the sewer of evil and sin because first and foremost, even in judgment, God has mercy. God judged the new Sodom, but he had mercy on them. When he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he killed everything and everyone except for Lot and his two daughters who escaped. Here, he did not kill everyone. He spared 600 men. Secondly, we'll notice that even in judgment, God always has a remnant. 600 men of Benjamin, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, all symbolizing the remnant. Thirdly, we're going to notice that God's sovereignty rules over all and his ways are never thwarted. God is not the cause of sin. He tempts no one to do sin and he cannot do evil. Um, yet God uses man's evil uh, for his glory. And then finally, we'll notice that the right king is coming and he saves and he forgives and he cleanses because he's a God of mercy and Let's start with this idea that there's hope in the sewer because even in judgment, God is a God of mercy. Notice in your text how many times the nation grieves and mourns over the loss of a tribe in Israel. Verse 3, they mention that a tribe is lacking in Israel. Verse 6, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. And then in verse 15, they state it again. But the reality is, a tribe is not cut off from Israel. If you go back to chapter 20, verse 46, uh, it clearly states, So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon and remained at the Rock of Ramon four months. Beloved, the, the, the nation of Israel was planning on destroying every man, every woman, every child in the city of Gibeah for what they did to the concubine, and they were planning on including all the tribe of Benjamin in their judgment because Benjamin protected those who wanted to sodomize the Levite and who also eventually horribly abused the concubine. They were going to destroy everyone and everything and not leave one person alive. What was going to happen here in Benjamin was going to be similar to the total destruction that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18:24 says, "The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground." The judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah left nothing be behind. And God himself was the one who delivered that judgment. The judgment on Benjamin 
was not carried out directly by God, but carried out indirectly by men and by going out to war. And on account of God's grace, on account of his mercy and his kindness, though they were the new Sodom, though they acted like Sodom, though they were as perverted as Sodom, God still allowed 600 to remain alive. He spared 600 men who would not have been spared if they hadn't escaped into the wilderness and fled to the rock of Ramon. What that means is that God does discipline and he does chastise and he does judge his people, but he does not and will not completely annihilate them. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were completely pagan. The nation of Israel, though living otherwise at the moment, is still God's people. And God does deal with his people differently than he does those who are not his people. So the reality is there was not a tribe completely wiped out in Israel. There was not a tribe missing. It had been disciplined. It had been pruned. It had been judged and chastised. But there's 600 men at the hiding at the Rock of Ramon. What the writer of the book of Judges wants us to see is that God's mercy prevails in judgment. And this is how God treats us. This is how God cares for us. Turn with me to Psalm 103 for a moment. Psalm 103 has just one of the most wonderful descriptions of God's mercy, uh, I think, in, in all of Scripture. Psalm 103, and I'll start reading from verse 8. Psalm 103, and I'll read from verse 8. The Lord is great, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Now, now we know that the wages of sin is death. We know that the soul that sins, it shall die. We know that he, God, has every right to bring his righteous judgment upon us at any time. And yet, and yet, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. He has compassion. He has the kind of compassion that a father has for his children. And he knows our frame. Well, of course he knows our frame. He made us. And since we're just dust, he deals with us accordingly with compassion and steadfast love and grace and mercy. Had he given the tribe of Benjamin what they deserved, they would all be dead. The entire nation of Israel would be dead. But instead, he graciously did not destroy them completely. He spared some. When he disciplines believers, when he disciplines you and I, he doesn't destroy us either. 
It's, it's to bring us back to obedience. It's to restore our relationship. We've gone over Hebrews 12 before. It, it uses the same metaphor of a love that a father has for his children. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And the ultimate goal is not annihilation. It's restoration. Aren't you thankful for a God who is slow to anger and rich in mercy? Thankful for a God who's gracious and kind and full of steadfast love. 600 men doesn't sound like much, but it moves us to our next point. Because the 600 are saved to remind us that God always has a remnant. No matter how sewer-like things become, God has promised that he will have a people to call his very own. Now we saw that in the book of Ruth, didn't we? We know that the story of Ruth took place during the time of the judges. And in the middle of all of that sin and all of the rebellion and all of the idol worship and all of the unbelief. In a place where we know that women couldn't even walk outside of their own property of their own field without being accosted or raped. It was that bad. It was in that environment that we did see a remnant. That little band of believers in Bethlehem represented by Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. Believers being kept and guarded in the middle of all the sewer of sin that's around them. There's a remnant. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God will have a people for his own possession, regardless of how, how evil things get. And we see this storyline all throughout Scripture. We, we really saw it first during the days of Noah. Remember Genesis 6-5, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God's judgment came when he flooded the world in order to kill, kill every animal and every human. And yet he preserves Noah. Noah builds an ark, which actually points to the rescue that we actually have in Christ. Noah was saved from the flood. God preserved a remnant. He preserved Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Even then, he just didn't destroy everyone, saving a remnant. We saw God preserving a remnant again when he spared that small little nation of Israel that only consisted of 75 people, 75 family members of the house of Jacob. When they're in the land of Canaan, when the whole world is experiencing a famine. When you read the whole story, you know that Joseph was sent to Egypt in advance to preserve the remnant. When the predicted famine ravaged the world. God had actually worked two or three decades in advance to be sure that his people would be cared for. He sends Joseph ahead to prepare the way, and though for 13 years he suffers, was falsely accused, he's innocent of any crimes, and yet God used all of the evil that he went through for his glory to preserve his people, to preserve a remnant. 
God made sure that his people would survive. His people would live. His people would be cared for. And they lived and they prospered until they became so numerous in Egypt that Pharaoh made them slaves. And eventually, God brought them gloriously out of slavery through the plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. And though he showed himself powerful to them over and over and over, they grumbled and they complained and they forgot God and they worshipped the golden calf that Aaron made. And they didn't believe by faith that they could take the promised land. So God kept them out of the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they died one by one. And Psalm 95.10 says, this is the Lord speaking, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And they didn't. They didn't enter God's rest. And even though they didn't, there was still a remnant. The next generation who were 20 and younger, they had to wait till all of those unbelievers died off one by one before they could enter the promised land through the leadership of Caleb and 80-year-old, I mean, of, of Joshua and 80-year-old Caleb. And we're aware from our earlier studies and judges that they did conquer the land. They moved forward by faith. And it looked so promising until Joshua died. And it didn't take long for the people to forget God again and go their own way. And we've already seen in Judges they end up in a sewer of unbelief and sin and idolatry. But there's always a remnant. Whether it's eight in the ark, 75 in Egypt, the next generation coming into the promised land, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin, God spares his people, and the 600 men of Benjamin. Picture that. Now, I'm going to take a little sidebar for a minute and reiterate something we've talked about in the past and then bring us back into our judges. For us to understand God preserving the remnant, it's important for us to understand the difference between the visible and the invisible church. The visible church is everybody who shows up on Sunday. The visible church includes everyone who professes faith in Christ. The visible church includes everybody who claims to be a Christian. It's kind of the physical church. It's the church that we see. It's the church of the folks who show up on Sundays. However, the invisible church are those who are truly in Christ. Invisible doesn't mean that you can see through them or they're ghost-like or they're unseen. But it means, as Paul states in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord knows those who are his. The invisible church are true Christians, and God knows who they are. When we gather as a group or any church gathers, we don't always know who are true Christians and who are not. Yet, we treat Everybody who's made a profession of faith, we treat everybody as if they're true believers. Yet God knows their hearts. And he knows those who are his. I don't know how many times that you're, you're with someone and someone will ask the question, well, do, do, do you think that your, your mom and dad passed away? Do you think they were Christians? And sometimes some of us have to say, you know, I'm really not sure. God knows who, 
whose or his, but I'm not positive about that. We don't always know the difference between the visible and the invisible church. The invisible church are those who have been truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who've repented of their sin, who've trusted Christ alone to save them, and are new creatures in Christ. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian is truly a Christian. Now, we've learned that from Matthew 7, haven't we? You can turn there. We've learned that from Jesus' words in Matthew 7, that not everybody who professes to be a Christian is indeed a true Christian. And Jesus picks up this topic in Matthew 7, starting with verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, what this passage is at least saying is that there are those attending on Sundays who may even work in the church, serve in the church, may teach Sunday school in the church, may even be in the pulpit preaching in the church, who are claiming they know Christ. They think they're doing the works of Christ. And Christ is saying he does not know them. They're claiming to be Christians, but Jesus is saying they're not doing the will of the Father. They're claiming to be Christians, and yet they're continuing in sin. See, Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness, which means they've never been regenerated. They're not born of the Spirit. We've been learning on, on Wednesday nights in Romans 6 that a genuine Christian, a genuine Christian cannot, cannot continue to practice sin and lawlessness. That a genuine Christian is united to Christ, has this Holy Spirit living in him, so he cannot continue to practice sin because he's been born of God. John says it this way in 1 John 3, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So, if you still sin easily, with no conviction, and no guilt, and no sorrow, and no grief, and no remorse, and no desire to die to sin, and no repentance, and no confession, those are all signs of an unregenerate heart. And you really do need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because if the Holy Spirit does not live in you, you are not a Christian. One of the clearest evidence of the Holy Spirit residing in us is the conviction of sin. So the people Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 
are part of the visible church, the gathered church. But they're not true believers. So they're not part of the true church, the invisible church. And the reality is that every Sunday the visible church gathers. And it's a mix with believers and unbelievers. Those who are truly in Christ and those who think they are and are not. And as I say this here this morning, I just, if you have any questions or any doubts or any confusion about your salvation, do not let another day go without seeking some answers. Please feel free to come and talk to me. We can walk through the scriptures together. Do not be on judgment day, one of those who hear, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name or that in your name? And have Jesus say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Because this is precisely what's going on in the book of Judges. Remember last week, I emphasized that the people think they're right with God. They think they're doing things for God. They, 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 in a sense, they have a profession of faith. You can see this in the language of the text. In chapter 21, verse 2, they sat before God. In chapter 21, verse 3, they prayed to God. They built an altar and sacrificed burnt and peace offerings on the altar. Again, no guilt offerings, no, no sin offerings. And they're at a place where there's no priest, there's no Ark of the Covenant, doing things their way, worshiping their way, thinking God is pleased with them. And this comes up again at the end of the chapter when in verse 19, there's that yearly feast to the Lord that has nothing to do with the sacrificial system, nothing to do with the prescribed feasts and festivals that God ordained. And the vineyards are mentioned to tell us what's really going on is just a big party. And this, too, has God's name attached to it, but it's not God-honoring. So, so what we have is we have individuals who believe they're serving God, but their hearts are far from him. Individuals who claim to be God's people who don't obey him. Individuals who have some outward form of religion yet don't know God, and they really are the visible church. And when God's judgment comes upon them, those who are true believers like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, who are part of the invisible church, they're affected by it as well. And yet, in God's mercy, he always spares a remnant. We see this in Babylon captivity, don't we? When God sends Nebuchadnezzar into the nation of Judah to judge and punishment, punish it for its sin. And even those who are faithful to God, faithful to his covenant, like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, all of them were under God's judgment. And yet as they obeyed God in the captivity, God worked in their lives and in the circumstances around them to preserve them. Because God always has a remnant. See, this is why there's hope in the middle of the sewer. This is why in our greatest difficulty, in our greatest darkness, in the most oppressive evil, God knows those who are his. And he keeps those who are his. And he watches over those who are his. And God has not forgotten those who are his. Because there's always a remnant. 
Notice thirdly, there's hope in this sewer because God's sovereignty rules over all and his ways are never thwarted, even when men do evil. I mentioned last week that we cannot blame God for the near extinction of the tribe of Benjamin. The nation of, of Israel cannot go out and kill every man, every woman, every child from the tribe of Benjamin and then come back and weep before the Lord uh, because there's no women for the 600 men uh, to, to marry. The reason there's no women is because they killed them all. And this sets them on that horrible trajectory of killing the men of Jebus Gilead and keeping the young virgins and then running short on women and having to kidnap 200 more young girls later. So no, they cannot blame God because God cannot sin. He cannot do evil. He never tempts anyone to do evil. Every person is accountable for their own actions. All sin comes from within, from the heart of man. So all the sin and all the evil in the sewer is on account of the actions of each and every individual involved. Beginning with the concubine and the Levite and the men of Gibeah and the tribe of Benjamin and the nation of Israel. There is sin or you might say there's blood on everyone's hands. And though the genocide of the tribe of Benjamin, the slaughter of or the overkill of the men of Jebus Gilead, the gathering together of the first 400 virgins, and the kidnapping of the other 200 were not by any means commanded by God. God still used all of this evil to judge all involved and to eventually restore the tribe of Benjamin. God's ways are never thwarted. He doesn't author evil but he uses the evil that men freely do to fulfill his purposes. And a perfect example of this is in the death of Christ. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This particular truth of how God's providential sovereignty works as man makes free choices that God holds him accountable for is really made clear here in this text. You should notice how Peter explains the crucifixion beginning in verse 22. And notice who he holds accountable. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So who killed Jesus? It's according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge or his foreordination. It's not that he knew it was going to happen. It's that he planned it. God foreordained it. However, Peter's telling the Jewish leaders that they crucified and killed Jesus. Beloved, how this works is a mystery. God is in complete sovereign control of all that happens. Man is responsible for his sin. 
God does not make anyone sin, yet God uses man's sinful actions for his glory because his purposes are never thwarted by sin or evil. In the case of Judges 21, it was the nation of Israel that caused the near annihilation of Benjamin. At the same time, verse 15 is true that the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So God used the nation of Israel's evil actions in his judgment against the tribe. What, what this means is that we can have hope in the sewer, can't we? Because all of this sin and all of this evil, the civil war, the stealing of the girls and so on, we can be confident that even when we don't fully understand it, that God is fulfilling his plans and his purposes because his ways are never thwarted. His sovereignty rules over all. He rules over kings and princes and rulers and presidents. He rules over the cosmos, over rain and famine and, and plenty. He rules over natural disasters and even he rules over blessings. He rules over all the affairs of men. And because he's omnipotent or all-powerful, and because he's omnipresent or he's everywhere, and because he's omniscient or knows everything, there's nothing that takes him by surprise. And nothing can prevent him from fulfilling his plan. In our deepest tragedies, we can trust him. With our greatest burdens, we can hang on to him. Because nothing escapes his watchful eye. And this gives us great hope and great comfort while the sewer of evil and sin is all around us. Finally, I want you to see that in the sewer we can have hope because the coming of a king. And not just any king, but, but an eternal king, a holy king, a righteous king, a perfect king. And the reason why I say not just any king is because the nation's desire for a king was in fact fulfilled, but it didn't resolve the problem that they wanted solved. The nation wanted a king for all the wrong reasons. They wanted a king to be like the other nations. Their desire for a king was actually a rejection of God as their king. Now, we don't have the time to look at all the passages related to King Saul, but we know that Saul was not the right king. He rejected God's authority. He did what was right in his own eyes. He was judged and he lost the kingdom because of it. And during his reign and during his rejection, God raised up his choice as king. The ruddy shepherd boy, King David. And what a king he was. He was a leader. He was a warrior. He was benevolent. He was a man after God's own heart. Uh, this was it. Israel finally had her king. No more doing what's right in our own eyes. No more going their own way. They submitted to David. The tabernacle was fully functional and operational. They worshipped. They sang. David wrote psalms for the congregation to sing. The nation prospered. He prepared the way for his son Solomon to move forward on not just a tabernacle, but build a real temple. They celebrated all the proper feasts. They began to expand their territory and take some of the land they never got when during Joshua's days. It was just a wonderful time in the nation. However, David failed. 
David sinned, we know, with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. He also, if you read 2 Samuel 24, he also numbered the people, which he shouldn't have done. And because of his sin, by numbering the people, 70,000 men and women of Judah died. David, too, sometimes did things that were right in his own eyes. So after David's reign, we have King Solomon, who was pulled away from God by the foreign wives he had. Then under King Rehoboam, the kingdom split, and within a few hundred years, Israel is conquered by Assyria, Judah is conquered by Babylon, and even with a king, eventually everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Every king has failed them. Every leader has failed them. Noah sins, gets drunk, and lays naked in his tent when he gets out of, not long after he gets out of the ark. Moses leads them out of Egypt and then sinfully gets angry and doesn't make it to the promised land. Joshua leads them into the promised land, but he gets old and he dies. All the judges are flawed. Their choice as king fails. David fails. So what's the continued problem? There's no king in Israel. Well, no king works. And everyone continues to do what's right in their own eyes. The problem isn't political. It's spiritual. They need a king. Not to conquer the enemies out there, but to conquer their rebellious hearts so they no longer want to do what's right in their own eyes. They needed a king who would come and resolve the problem of sin. They needed a king who would come and bring them back into a right relationship with God. They needed a king who would save them from their sin. They need a perfect king. They need a righteous king. They need a holy king. And the prophets predicted and prophesied that one was coming. Isaiah told them in Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What Isaiah is saying is that a baby is going to be born and he will rule over all governments and he will rule for all eternity. He is God, so he's immortal. He will never die. And he's perfectly just, and he's perfectly righteous. And as the prince of peace, he will establish peace with God, so we'll no longer do what is right in our own eyes. And then if we took the time to jump from Isaiah 9 to Isaiah 53, we'd see that the way he's going to establish peace was not through conquering nations or an insurrection. It was by bearing our griefs carrying our sorrows, being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our inequities. It'll be by his suffering that we're healed. You see, we need a savior because Isaiah tells us 
We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have turned everyone to his own way. You know what that means is? We all do what's right in our own eyes. What that means is we're the sewer. And we need cleansing. And what is our hope? The next verse in Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The book of Judges shows the depth of the depravity of man. And it includes us in that depravity because we're just like them. And we need what they need. We need a king who will come to our aid. We need a king who will come to our rescue. There's hope in the sewer of sin and evil in our own hearts because Jesus became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, we sang that earlier when we sang, our, my hope is in the Lord. My hope is is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price for all my sin at Calvary. No merit of my own. His anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. And now for me he stands before the Father's throne he shows his wounded hands. And he names me as his own. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. Is your hope in the Lord? Are you truly his? I hope so. Because if it is, and if you are, then even as we close in this final song, you'll know and recognize that he's going to keep you, he's going to hold you, and he's going to continue with you to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at your mercy. We're humbled at your grace. God, we're humbled that you have not given us what we deserve, but you've given us what we don't deserve. Father, we're humbled that though it's no merit of our own, Father, but you're the one who calls us to yourself through your great love and through your great mercy. And I just pray, Father, as we continue to um, think through all that we've experienced today from your word and from the songs that we've sung, Father, we just pray that, that all who are here would be confident, Lord, of their being in Christ. And if anyone's not, I just pray, or even this morning, they would bow before you in humble repentance, Lord, or look to the scriptures and get some clarity. But Lord, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Christ will hold me fast. 
When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious. Holding us, we would never last, and how thankful we are for your keeping power. In the name of the 